I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. Today's conversation is with journalist and writer Christine Grimaldi. Isn't that nice? Christine Grimaldi is a journalist and writer in Washington, D.C., who often covers reproductive issues and LGBTQ policy under the Trump administration. You know, I love talking to Christine because she's a real policy wonk. In this episode, we talk about how Democrats can use their majority in the House of Representatives to overturn and reverse eight years of the GOP's efforts to undermine bodily autonomy, as well as their efforts to chip away at reproductive rights and LGBTQ rights. Here is Christine describing what she thinks were the most harmful policies and changes made during the eight years that Republicans had control of the House of Representatives. So I think that over the past couple of years, we've seen President Trump stack his federal agencies with political appointees in the mold of Vice President Mike Pence. And these political appointees are far-right partisans. They're writing discriminatory regulations that push the boundaries of laws passed by Congress. Uh, So at Trump's U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, for example, example, we are seeing a full-out attack on reproductive rights, on LGBTQ rights, which are both matters of bodily autonomy. And often these regulations are written in ways to attack both of them underneath uh, that same mold. So I think we also see the biggest consequences where uh, things like race and income and immigration status overlap. You know, we are seeing this administration go after reproductive rights and LGBTQ rights, but also hurt people who are the most marginalized who would benefit the most from the programs that the administration is trying to basically trying to get rid of. You know, but they're even coming after contraception, right? And birth control, you know, and that view used to be, you know, from the far, far right. It was a fringe idea, you know, that a woman should not even have the autonomy to decide when and if she gets pregnant, let alone the right to to end that pregnancy. So, you know, what are some of the more recent attacks on birth control that, that have kind of flown under the radar? Over at the health department, we're seeing efforts to undermine Obamacare's birth control benefit. That widely guarantees no copay contraception to about 62.4 million cisgender women and also transgender and non-binary people as well. We are seeing efforts to undercut the Title X family planning program, which provides affordable birth control, cancer screenings, STI and HIV testing to about 4 million people with low incomes, the majority of whom are people of color. And we are also seeing the administration uh, not only go after the funding for this program, but also try to uh, degrade the integrity of the program. They're trying to shift it away from offering the full spectrum of contraception to focus on natural family planning, which doesn't work for everyone. And we are also seeing the administration potentially award Title X grant money to crisis pregnancy centers, which are fake clinics that try to dissuade pregnant people from a obtaining an abortion, and usually they do it by deceptive means. Other things that we're seeing, efforts to eliminate the teen pregnancy prevention programs uh, and then overhaul the scraps into abstinence-only education. There are also efforts to embolden conscience protections for health professionals. So anyone from a doctor to a pharmacist to a receptionist who doesn't want to assist in providing abortion care or prescribing birth control or treating LGBTQ 
occupations for any reason. So we could be talking about gender affirming care here, but we could also be talking about an LGBTQ patient who seeks treatment for the common cold or life-threatening injuries from a car accident. This is really scary. Um, This is basically eroding federal civil rights protections in healthcare settings. And it's an example of how the administration is using our nation's tenant of religious freedom as a weapon uh, instead of basically adhering to its original intention. So that's actually what I was afraid of. I was afraid of the fact that there wouldn't be a single thing that was most concerning, but that there are so many things and that they're equally concerning, right? You know, I'm old enough to remember a time when just one of those things would have caused a panic, like the 20-week abortion ban, for instance, right? You know, but now I feel like either there is a bit of apathy or a lack of interest, or we're just so distracted by everything that's going on that in the mainstream media, we're not talking about or fighting for these or fighting against these things very often, like we used to. Do you think that's a function of not having the legislative power we've had in the past? Or is it just because you know conservatives have been so prolific? I think it's actually a function of how much of the worst of the Trump administration is happening behind closed doors. Congress itself isn't always the most transparent body. But a lot of these actions, really all of the ones I just described, are happening at the federal agencies, you know, through rulemaking process, through writing regulations, which isn't necessarily something that people outside the Beltway understand. You know, they elect officials to come to Washington and represent them and try to propose legislation and pass laws. You know, these are at the federal agencies people that the Trump administration has brought on. They're partisans and they are fulfilling his agenda. You know, there are things that people can do to fight back. I, I thought, you know, it was great when we saw all of the people across the country calling Congress, calling their members of Congress, lighting up the congressional switchboard. An equivalent of that is to file public comments on proposed regulation. So basically, federal law, which we all know the Trump administration loves to try to get around um, or break, <laughs> federal law requires any administration to take a look at every piece of public comment that comes in. And if the Trump administration ignores those comments, it actually gives the advocates in the states that have been suing the administration in court better legal standing, a better case, uh, improves their arguments. So I think it's really important for journalists, quite frankly, to lift the veil of what's going on behind the scenes at the health department, at the justice department, uh, at the education department, which has rolled back civil rights protections for transgender students uh, and encourage the public or at least let them know that this option to file their discontent and not let the administration get away with these actions is available to them. You know, the thing about, you know, filing public comments, I mean, I guess that would be a part of the role for a journalist, right? But is it also our elected officials to let people know that this is a process that they can participate in? Yeah, I, I would say that's accurate. I mean, I'm pretty wonky. <laughs> so I could talk about regulations all day and regulatory policy all day, but there's not a lot of coverage of it. It's a, it's a tough issue. I don't think that members of Congress are necessarily um, you know, educating their constituents about what they can do to fight back. When it comes to regulations, I also understand that uh, they have a full-time job trying to hold the administration accountable um, with whatever little power that they have right now in Congress. Uh, So I think it's kind of a a dual effort here. It would be great to see members of Congress uplift 
the regulatory process. It would be great to see more journalists uplift the regulatory process. And then, you know, finally, the public has to participate in the regulatory process. And I know that is not necessarily the most, you know, instantaneously gratifying thing to do because you're not getting, you know, the immediate feedback that you would get from speaking to somebody's staffer in Congress. But rest assured, the administration has to read those comments. And if they do not read those comments, they are in big trouble. The administration has already uh, seen itself in a bit of hot water for rushing the rulemaking process, trying to file things uh, called interim final rules, which basically the rule or whatever most often discriminatory policy that they've proposed goes into effect immediately and the comments are reviewed after. Well, that's only supposed to happen in extraordinary cases. And I don't think that discriminating against LGBTQ people and trying to hijack a reproductive health care represents an extraordinary situation. So I think that we need more people to uh, both raise the profile of and pay attention to what the administration is doing here. So, I mean, would that really happen? I mean, would they really be in hot water? I mean, because they no one's really held them accountable for some of their most you know egregious acts. You know, like what would actually happen? Well, the courts have been helping us out here. In uh, January, a federal judge in Pennsylvania temporarily blocked the rollback of the birth control benefit. Uh, we've seen successes in the courts. They may not be permanent, but they are at least temporary, and they have staved off some of the worst of the regulations that the Trump administration has tried to put into effect. So I think that anything that the public can do to try to bolster some of these cases and to that end, file public comment is important for for all of us to do. I see. So so on the legislative front, a lot of things that they've done, a lot of their efforts have failed because because of votes in the Senate. They require a 60 vote supermajority, which which they don't have. So why do they keep trying? What's the purpose of trying? Uh, Republicans or Democrats? Republicans. Okay. Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> I guess it goes both ways, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Republicans for the past eight years controlled the House of Representatives. So even before uh, Trump was elected as president, they were advancing an agenda that looked eerily like some of the policies he's putting forward now. They were racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic bills. And the only reason they didn't advance, like you said, is because the Senate requires a 60 vote supermajority to pass most controversial pieces of legislation. I mean, the only reason that we don't have a 20 week abortion ban right now is because we still have that 60 vote supermajority in place. We've seen Donald Trump try to urge Mitch McConnell to get rid of it so that a 20 week abortion ban could succeed. So with a Republican controlled House before the most recent midterm elections and a Republican controlled Senate and a Republican president, we would have had a 20-week abortion ban in place uh, if this rule didn't exist. So that was good in that respect, but the supermajority also hurts us in other regards too, right? Like Democrats have control of the House right now. They certainly, their bills are not going to be taken up by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in the Senate. And even if Democrats did have control of the Senate right now, if it was a, a more narrow majority that they had, a lot of their bills couldn't go forward. But it's still really important for Democrats to take a really proactive approach here right now. I mean, that's something that Republicans rather successfully 
successfully did over the past eight years that they were in control of the House, during their time in control of the Senate, and with Donald Trump as president, they are not shy about advancing a proactive agenda that hurts a lot of people. And now is Democrats' time to advance a proactive agenda that not only tries to reverse some of that, but also moves the needle forward. I know we have a more progressive house than ever before, and we don't want to go backwards. You know, we want to create an agenda on which to run um, and maybe eventually govern Washington in the majority. So I think that it's going to be important for Democrats to really stick by their commitments to reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights, uh, even when they don't have a chance of passing most of these bills in the Senate. Do you have strong feelings? I sure do. My name is Sarah Wachter-Vetcher, and I'm here with my best friend, Catella Du. Hey, y'all. We're the hosts of Strong Feelings, a podcast about work, feminism, and friendship. Every week, we talk about the stuff that really matters, like unfucking your work life or taking better care of your brain and body than just swigging wine and smearing on another face mask. Wait, I can still do that sometimes, though, right? Totally, but you have to invite me. Okay, deal. We will also be talking about all the ways we're confronting our own bullshit, like how we're unlearning body shame or breaking out of the comfort of white feminism. And you'll hear intimate conversations with authors, artists, activists, and entrepreneurs. We'll ask them why they do what they do and what happens when it gets hard. So check out Strong Feelings, your weekly dose of fun feminist real talk with the best friends you didn't know you were missing. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or check us out at strongfeelings.co because life's too short to bottle things up. So now the Dems have a majority in the House, they'll have the same issue with the Senate. They don't have a majority in the Senate. So, you know, so what's the aim here for them? I, I spoke with a number of Democrats for a recent article that I wrote about how they plan to counter uh, the Trump administration's anti-LGBTQ and anti-reproductive health care agenda. And they described not only a kind of a sprint to defeat the worst of Trump's policies, but also a marathon to advance the best of their own. And I think that they can use this time, even when they don't have a majority in the Senate, to solidify this agenda, to make sure that it's not only affirmative, but also affirming, you know, that it doesn't leave anyone out. Democrats have made compromises in the past that have particularly hurt marginalized people. We don't see that as much anymore, thanks to uh, some of the advances that we've seen among the caucus. I think that we also gain visibility for the 2020 congressional elections and the presidential election, right? The more that we see them in the news championing reproductive health and LGBTQ rights, uh, the more that they inspire their base who are actually going to turn out for them during uh, the election. So I think that those are all really important things to consider right now and that Democrats have in mind as they're trying to go forward with what power they have right now. So I think you're saying that this is partly about shaping the message for the party, you know, I mean, especially considering that, you know, the 2020 election is around the corner, that it's in part, you know, kind of symbolic messaging to constituents to say, you know, hey, you know, many of these won't pass, but here is what we stand for as a party. And if you keep voting for us, voting us into office, this is what you're voting for. Is that is that fair? 
Yeah. It's symbolism, but it's also, I would say, action as well. I mean, they do in the House, Democrats, have the power to pass bills through that chamber, and they have the power to pass the best bills that they can, and they should be doing that. You know, for instance, the Hyde Amendment, which is uh, a ban on Medicaid and other public health insurance programs from covering abortion care, it's a discriminatory policy. It falls disproportionately on women with low incomes and women of color. There's a push for Medicare for all um, that would expand, you know, Medicare uh, eligibility to all Americans. That's the single payer option. And previously, um, when these types of bills were introduced, they didn't end the Hyde Amendment. And theoretically, you could end up expanding the Hyde Amendment to cover or rather to touch all people if you don't write the best bill that you can. And now we're seeing a push to make sure that Medicare for all bills proactively repeal the Hyde Amendment or make sure that the Hyde Amendment is ended. So I think it's really important not just to be symbolic, but also to uh, make sure that when Democrats are introducing bills, first of all, that they've put the thought into it when they're writing these bills to make sure that they are more progressive and more inclusive than they've been in the past. And then secondly, to make sure that they're actually advancing them, you know, that these pieces of legislation aren't sitting dormant. You know, many pieces of legislation are introduced in every Congress, and a lot of them don't go anywhere. But now Democrats have the opportunity to both bring them to the floor for a vote prior to that, to hold committee hearings. You know, this is a real time for action and and not just kind of words that don't mean anything. Yeah. You know, sometimes I wonder if anyone's still holding out for Susan Collins, right? Like she's hoodwinked us a number of times and they think that, you know, perhaps maybe someday. Jen, I am not holding out hope for Susan Collins. <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> vote once. I am. I am. Uh, after the Christine Blasey Ford uh, testimony, I am done with Susan Collins. <laughs> We've all been done with Susan Collins. <laughs> so let's talk about the Hyde Amendment, because, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, that was originally passed, I think, in, you know, over 40 years ago. Was it 1976? 1976. And basically 1976. Right. So it restricts, you know, taxpayer money going to abortion, except in cases of rape and incest. Right. And as you've mentioned, Democrats have made compromises and concessions in relation to that. What specifically, what specific concessions have they made? Uh, they made the concession to include it in appropriations bills, um, you know, every year that fund the government. You know, Democrats were in power, and when they were in power, they accepted Hyde as the cost of doing appropriations business on Capitol Hill. That's really a betrayal to their constituents. It's a betrayal to people with low incomes. It makes abortion access contingent on your privilege uh, instead of the constitutional right that it is. We've seen a big shift, even in just the past five or seven years. I, I never thought that this would be possible, but thanks to the Reproductive Justice Coalition, all above all, the National Network of Abortion Funds, the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health, those groups have all worked to shift Democrats' attitudes in the House. In the last Congress, Representative Barbara Lee, who co-chairs the House Pro-Choice Caucus, uh, introduced the Each Woman Act to end the Hyde Amendment in federal law. And more than two-thirds of House Democrats supported this bill, and even five or seven years ago, 
like I said, we wouldn't have seen that happen. So I think that we're going to see an even more robust swelling of support for the Each Woman Act this year when Representative Arberly reintroduces it. We've seen a, a very progressive wave of first-year members of the House of Representatives. We have a majority of Democrats are pro-choice, a majority of the House is pro-choice. And I think that House Democrats, by signing on to this bill and hopefully passing it, are sending a really powerful message that abortion access shouldn't be contingent on your privilege, your income, your race, your geography, that abortion is a constitutional right for all people in this country. I think that that message would be even more powerful if Senate Democrats introduce their own end hide bill. We haven't seen that yet, but there's reason to be cautiously optimistic. So I think that hopefully we'll see Senate Democrats who are also, you know, limited in their power in some ways to really rise up and embrace this. I also want to highlight something you said earlier in relation to having a large number of people in the House who are pro-choice, you know, and I'm glad that we have a historic number of women in the House. I don't think anyone would argue that 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 is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it shouldn't take that. It shouldn't we shouldn't have to rely on getting a historic number of women in the House to focus on reproductive justice. Mm -hmm. You know, one pet peeve that I've always had is when people refer to reproductive issues as women's issues, right? Quote unquote, women's issues, because it's not just a woman's issue. I mean, there are an in number of peripheral people in a woman's life who benefit from a woman having bodily autonomy, right? There are lots of peripheral people who are not women and who don't actually have to carry out a pregnancy who benefit from a woman having bodily autonomy, right? You know, and additionally, we probably wouldn't have this historic number of women, honestly, in the House had they not had bodily autonomy themselves, right? The, the agency to control when to have a family or, you know, to choose not to have a family, frankly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to those points, a couple things popped into mind. You know, first of all, LGBTQ people need access to reproductive health care. You know, they use contraception. They go and get gynecological exams. And as far as gender affirming health care, We've seen Catholic hospitals deny transgender men you know, hysterectomies. So I think that what the Trump administration is doing here to embolden conscience protections really emboldens you know, this kind of attitude we've seen, whether that's at Catholic hospitals or among uh, health providers that are more narrow-minded about who is allowed to have access to reproductive health care when we are all supposed to have access to reproductive health care. So back to the Each Woman Act. So this is specifically intended to... Um, what, to reverse the Hyde Amendment or what specifically is it targeting? Right. So it would end the Hyde Amendment. So Hyde is something that needs to be attached to appropriations bills every year to help keep the government running. We obviously have a dysfunctional appropriations process. You know, we we recently saw a a stopgap measure called a continuing resolution that helped keep the government open. And I think that the Hyde Amendment is something that we have seen attached to these bills every year to try to shut down abortion access. And it's just something that Democrats have decided it can no longer stand. So this pro-choice caucus, who else is on the pro-choice caucus that we should watch out for? Mm. What other legislation are they are they eyeing? 
Well, there's there's a lot of legislation, Chip. Um, <laughs> so much legislation. So, okay. So, Representatives Diana DeGette and Barbara Lee co-chair the caucus. I don't have the most recent figure, but I think it's basically the majority of the House. Because, again, with the exception of Colin Peterson and Dan Lipinski, I think are the only two anti-abortion Democrats who are left in the House. There may be one other. But you really have a robust House pro-choice caucus. And if members aren't in it, they are certainly supporting it. And as far as the legislative plans that you mentioned, it is a uh, robust and varied, but ultimately cohesive agenda, which is heartening to see. House Democrats are trying to protect all of the programs that I mentioned earlier. So they've got legislation in the works to protect Title X family planning funding and teen pregnancy prevention programs funding, and also the integrity of those kinds of programs, right? And not just steering away from reproductive and sexual health that's uh, rooted in evidence and facts and science, which is what we've seen this administration try to do. Um, And then during the recent government shutdown, I think the first, I believe, continuing resolution, the stopgap measure to reopen the government, Democrats included a repeal of the global gag rule in there. That's an anti-abortion provision that holds $8.8 billion worth of U.S. foreign aid hostage. So non-governmental organizations working abroad can't even say the word abortion. They cannot offer it as an option. It it gags them. So uh, that obviously did not make it into the final continuing resolution that ultimately reopened the government. But the fact that we are seeing these kinds of things on the table is really important. So the conversations around, you know, considering that we're in the Democratic primary, we've had lots of conversations around, you know, expanding health care or government funded health care. Right. How does that complicate the conversation around overturning the Hyde Amendment? So (laughs) Hyde complicates the Medicare for all equation, uh, because if you think about it, Hyde is a ban on public health insurance programs. If you are expanding Medicare to cover the entire population of the United States, you are theoretically expanding the Hyde Amendment to touch everybody in the United States. So an issue that disproportionately and unfairly targeted low-income women, women of color, is now affecting uh, the entire country. I think that the entire country should have cared before that this was happening. This shouldn't be some kind of wake-up call. But also, we do want to make sure that the Hyde Amendment is not inadvertently expanded vastly and codified into permanent law, since it's something that has been passed every year as part of the appropriations process. You know, I know we talked about maternal mortality rates, and there was a recent study by ProPublica and NPR that showed that the U.S. has the worst maternal mortality rates in the developed world. So the country that came closest to the U.S. was the U.K. Mm-hmm. They're second in line. But, but here's the thing. Maternal deaths in the U.S. are nearly three times what they are in the U.K., That's how big the gap is. Yeah. Well, and I think that even more troublingly, you know, you you talked about that rate. I mean, amplify that three to four times more for black women across all income and education levels. I mean, this crisis is it's holistic, but it is also specifically affecting black women. And it's something that needs to be addressed. So when Representative Robin Kelly introduced the MAMA Act, she included key provisions, you know, to try to tackle this as a whole, but also 
also increase cultural competency training to make sure that doctors and physicians know how to better treat Black women, how to address their crises when they're in the hospitals and make sure that they're getting the best health care that they can. Uh, she also included a provision to expand the Medicaid postpartum coverage period from 60 days to a year. That's really significant. You know, moms raising babies need access to health care, uh, especially at a juncture when maybe they have a low income and they rely on Medicaid and they need to uh, choose between making a doctor's appointment or paying for a car seat or, or child care or whatever their child needs. But we know that in order to have healthy babies, we need healthy moms too. And that's really something that's ignored often from the equation. You know, one thing to consider is how this ties into what's happening in Virginia right now, right? The, the the governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, someone found a photo of him dressed in blackface or in a KKK hood, but that was from 1984. But here's the thing, that was a yearbook from his medical school. And I think it's worth pointing out that the people who were in those photos, in the photos of this medical school yearbook, have probably become doctors. And they no doubt have Black patients or have had Black patients or are taking care of Black mothers, you know, who are dying at higher rates. So with that said, you know, how does one even begin to tackle this legislatively? I think the cultural competency training that Representative Kelly has included is really important. I mean, we need to make sure that doctors aren't ignoring the needs of women, aren't ignoring the needs of Black women specifically. I mean, we know how much entrenched sexism and racism exists within our country's medical history. I mean, our country was built on that. Hospitals were built on that. They're still operating on that today. So I think that, you know, seeing those photos, it it just evoked that in addition to just evoking obviously the racist image and the white supremacy, you know, that is entrenched in this country, it really just evoked this, um, you know, very ugly and ongoing chapter in our nation's medical care um, for women and black women in particular. And also there's the Do No Harm Act, right? And that, that was introduced by Kamala Harris, right? What is the Do No Harm Act that was introduced by Kamala Harris? So the Do No Harm Act is a piece of legislation that would restore religious freedom to its original intent, right? That our country was founded on religious freedom, but it shouldn't be used as a weapon to deny people federal civil rights protections or access to health care or really any services that they should be able to access. So this is something that she is planning to reintroduce along with Representative Joe Kennedy in the House. He's the chair of the Transgender Equality Task Force, and he's been a really big proponent of this bill as well. So between the two of them, I think that they are doing a really good job to try to raise the profile of this bill and make sure that it's something that actually gets done. Um, Because we've seen the Trump administration use religious freedom as this excuse to embolden healthcare providers, really to embolden anyone who wants to turn away somebody based on their gender identity, uh, on their sexual orientation, on their sexual history, you know, uh, on pregnancy, if you are an unwed person who may be pregnant. These are all things that the Trump administration is trying to go after with using religious freedom as an excuse. Okay, so that's on the legislative front. So I want to talk about the oversight committees. You mentioned earlier, 
Diana DeJet, right? She heads up the House Energy and Commerce Committee's Oversight and Investigative Panel. What kind of hearings could they have, for instance, on something related to reproductive rights? Okay. Well, Representative DeGette, she talked to me about trying to hold science-based hearings, fact-based hearings that examine the Trump administration's efforts to restrict access to family planning, to limit abortion access, and to eliminate fetal tissue research, which is legal and something that the Trump administration has been trying to demonize. In the last Congress, we actually saw House Republicans go after fetal tissue research and Planned Parenthood then. We saw then-Representative Marsha Blackburn, who's now a U.S. Senator. She led a special committee that spent $1.57 million on this anti-abortion witch hunt that copied and pasted disproved allegations about fetal tissue research, about Planned Parenthood, and really elevated them in the public psyche. Then we saw Senate Judiciary Committee Chair, he was chair at the time, Chuck Grassley, before he treated Christine Blasey Ford so poorly, he directed his staff to write a 500-page-plus report and forward it to the U.S. Department of Justice. This report contained a lot of lies, uh, echoed a lot of what the House Republicans had put forward about Planned Parenthood, about fetal tissue research. And Chuck Grassley asked DOJ to open a criminal investigation into Planned Parenthood. So I think right now, if we have hearings like the kinds that Representative get described, where we are examining reproductive health from a science and evidence-based perspective, it's going to be really important, especially considering you know all of these actions that the administration has simmering or has already put into place to try to degrade people's rights. So Democrats had a supermajority under Obama, and I know that there was an effort to get some really big pieces of legislation done, like the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, and DACA, Obama's Dreamers program. But the attacks on reproductive issues were were ongoing, and, and they had been for a while. So, you know, why wasn't there more focus on shoring up legislation around reproductive issues, you know, making those existing laws stronger? Well, a couple of things. I mean, reproductive rights are always the first thing to go. They're always on the chopping block. <laughs> They're always the thing that even Democrats are like, oh, we can compromise on that. But you can't. You can't compromise on it. You know, abortion rights are an economic justice issue. They're just as important as taking on the big banks. You know, if a woman or a person can't control their reproductive agency or is not in charge of that, then they can't control their economic destiny. You know, like, as you said before, we've seen a, an incredible wave of of progressive women elected to the House, they, I'm sure, as you said, have harnessed their reproductive agency to get there. You know, the last time that Democrats uh, were in power, when they passed the Affordable Care Act, there were far more anti-abortion Democrats in the House. I mean, you had Bart Stupak there, who was trying to insert anti-abortion provisions into the Affordable Care Act. It doesn't look like that anymore. We only have, to the best of my knowledge, uh, two very high profile in their views, anti-abortion Democrats who remain in the House. So the makeup of Democrats has changed that uh, people have elected to the House of Representatives. They are overwhelmingly pro-choice. So I think it was easier than or more convenient than for even pro-choice Democrats to cave when there were more anti-choice Democrats in the House. I mean, we're not going to see that now. So it better not be happening now. (laughs) 
Yeah. So who are some of the oversight committee members that we should watch out for in some of the upcoming hearings that are probably making the administration really nervous right now? So, well, I think that uh, hopefully we'll see the House Pro-Choice Caucus, you know, examine certain administration officials under oath. We saw in the last Congress, the House Pro-Choice Caucus be very vocal about an administration official by the name of Scott Lloyd, who tried to deny uh, undocumented uh, immigrant minors from obtaining their constitutional constitutional right to abortion. And there were a lot of calls led by representatives uh, Lee and Deget to fire him. And I think that um, he deserves more scrutiny. He's no longer in that position, but he is still at the health department. And there are many, many others like him who are working to deny uh, undocumented immigrant minors their constitutional right to abortion, to strip uh, LGBTQ people of their civil rights protections, to end access to abortion care, uh, to birth control, uh, to make pregnancy unsafe, to make birth unsafe. I mean, they're really going after the full spectrum here. So I think it would be really great if we saw the pro-choice caucus and other Democrats, you know, bring in some of these officials and try to get answers from them. You know, some of those officials were on Capitol Hill last year. Scott Lloyd was. Democrats asked some really tough questions, uh, which was great. But Republicans were the ones controlling the gavel, and now Democrats are. So it'll be great to see them use their gavel power in the new Congress. Christine Grimaldi, thank you so much for this conversation. It's really enlightening for me. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please visit The Electorate on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's at Electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight. <laughs>